Take your Bible, turn to Matthew chapter 14. For those that have been in this church a long time, it finally has happened. You can have three pages spread out simultaneously and not have them fall off of the pulpit. Thanks to the Lord for His mercy there, and certainly thanks to Claire Fetters for building such a beautiful pulpit. And the Word of God, Matthew chapter 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus. He said to his servants, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias and the brother Philip's wife. Because John had been saying to him, it's not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people because they held him to be a prophet. But when Herod's birthday came, the daughter of Herodias danced before the company and pleased Herod. So that he promised with an oath to give her whatever she might ask. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me the head of John the Baptist here on a platter. And the king was sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he commanded it to be given. He sent and had John beheaded in the prison. And his head was brought on a platter and given to the girl. And she brought it to her mother. And his disciples came and took the body and buried it. And they went and told Jesus. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we do ask that you would use your word. You've spoken to us in its reading now. Even in this gruesome portion, we ask that you would speak to us in its preaching. Give clarity of speech, we ask. And clarity of understanding. That our faith might grow. For Christ's sake, amen. It's probably a good habit, and I suspect one that many Christians probably don't have, uh, of just spending time kind of contemplating uh, the diversity and the unity and the beauty and the excellence of the Scriptures. To just pause for a moment and to think about just all of the various and wondrous qualities that the Bible possesses. And I don't mean that in the sense of you should have private Bible reading time. You should do that. Uh, I don't mean that as you should have kind of corporate Bible reading time. You should do that. We do that every Sunday. But I mean it in the sense of like just pausing and reflecting on how incredibly wise God is that he wrote the Bible the way that he did. And one of the things that I love to kind of contemplate is how the Lord in his infinite wisdom, wrote a book that appeals to kind of every different personality and perspective throughout human history. In some various ways, some passages are easier to understand and easier to apprehend than others, but uh, depending on if you like the Myers-Briggs or the Enneagram version, which is witchcraft or any of the other things, I'm just kidding, it's not. Um, but to think about how the different personalities uh, so much kind of more easily resonate with the various portions of Scripture. Uh, 
You have, if you're an artist and you think not so much kind of in logical flow, but in colors and movements and feels and themes, you have John, the artist, writing, kind of capturing light and dark, not so much a logical flow. Some of you actually instead, your brain has to function on chronology. It it likes start to finish. It likes that flow. You have Luke. It tells you the story of Jesus kind of beginning to end. You have Matthew the theologian that helps us understand for those of you that are impatient. You have Mark. Now, let's not worry about all that teaching stuff. Let me tell you about who Jesus is, what he did how he died, and how he was raised. You have poetry for those of you that struggle to verbalize the depth of the feeling in your soul. So much of the Scriptures put word to that in the Psalms. I love that. And I love how even the Lord understands that some of us, perhaps, don't learn very well except by example. Some of us learn by theory. You can say, here's a theory, A plus B equals C, and you can see it in your head, and that's all you need to be able to extrapolate it to the ends of the earth. We tend to love algebra, right? It doesn't matter. Just give me a theory, and I can sort out abstract numbers and abstract letters, and uh, putting letters into math just made it more fun because I can understand it. Some of us, however, we need to see it. It doesn't make sense until it's kind of put in flesh and blood in front of us. And that's actually what we have in chapter 14, this beginning portion. I'm going to be honest, this part of Scripture is very difficult. It seems completely out of place in the flow of what Matthew has been doing, except for it functions really as an example of verse 57 of the previous chapter. Remembering Matthew puts his together thematically, theologically. In verse 56, Jesus is answering, um, or 57, sorry, Jesus is answering this, uh, dealing with the town. His hometown has rejected him because they're saying, well, isn't this just Mary's son? Doesn't he have brothers and sisters? Isn't he the carpenter's kid? He's just normal Jesus. And Uh, Even going so far as to say they took offense at him, and Jesus answers, well, a prophet's not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. It means that while it's easy for a prophet to be appreciated afar off, it's uh, very difficult for those that have seen him and lived with him and lived in front of them for them to appreciate his authority and his truth. It's a difficult thing, and here we come to, uh, in chapter 14, the last of the prophets prior to Jesus. We have, in essence, if we're really kind of be a little bit uh, technical, we have the last Old Testament figure show up. You know, out of all the two-thirds of the Bible that you have, if Old Testament after Old Testament after Old Testament, John is the close of it. And here we have his death, it's putting into kind of graphic explanation, gruesome illustration, what it means that a prophet is rejected in his hometown. The Jews won't have him. 
Now, uh, what to do with this passage? This is a hard passage to apply. I mean, it's really quite difficult. Most of us have uh, never been confronted with a situation like this, and so we read it, we think, ooh, it's bloody, it's gory, I have no idea what to do with this in my life. How does Michael live differently in 2021 in light of the death of John the Baptist? Well, I think we're going to look at it from a a perspective of this, I think it functions as a warning for us today. Uh, It's going to showcase a number of kind of dangers uh, that only God himself is an answer to. Uh, It's a warning of danger, impending danger. First, all right, what do we we mean by this? Well, uh, this passage, the first uh, 12 verses of Matthew chapter 14, function as a warning against the danger of letting our circumstances shape our view of God's goodness. Okay, this is going to be extremely important. This functions as a warning uh, of the danger of letting our circumstances shape our view of God's goodness. Well, if you were to kind of read the whole book of Matthew, you would see that John has showed up at the beginning. He's uh, the introducer of Jesus. He's, uh, if you wanted to kind of uh, say he's the warm-up act. He's the one who's gotten everybody ready, the crowd ready to listen to the arrival of Jesus Christ, the one who has paved the way. He's preached. He's lived out in the desert. He has uh, kind of been the ultimate a consistent theologian. He lives in light of his theologies, not a hypocrite as far as we can tell. But yet in this passage, we see him imprisoned and not just for a, a matter of days or weeks, but months or years. It's bad. And I'm going to suggest that the prison in which he's probably being stored is perhaps not quite so nice as our prison system today. And the passage ends with him dying. Not just dying in a kind of, you know, peaceful way in his sleep, but gruesomely beheaded and his head displayed as a, a, an object at a party, a centerpiece on the table. And it would be easy for us to kind of look at this and say, well, how, how did this happen? How did John, the, the great prophet John, how did he end up this way? How did the last figure of the Old Testament end up dying like this? Well, you know, maybe, maybe it's just that God wasn't good, at least not right here. I mean, he's good all the time. He's good to other people, I guess, but maybe he wasn't good to John. I mean, John's being treated unfairly. He's being murdered unfairly. It's just not fair. It's just not right. I think most of us, if you've been in the church for any length of time, uh, we at least have the propriety to not say that out loud. We may think it in our, our minds, we may believe it in our hearts, but most of us at least have the propriety to not say that God isn't good. So we come up with lesser and, and weaker solutions. Well, maybe John sinned. Maybe it's John's fault. Maybe if he just kept his mouth shut, the whole thing would have just gone away. It would have just disappeared. It's, maybe it's John's fault. Now, there's a pro- problem with that is that Matthew has made it explicit it's not. 
In fact, actually, he's put these in the words of Jesus just three chapters prior in Matthew chapter 11, verses 7 through 11. Jesus himself explains what John's character is like. He speaks to the crowd about John. He says, what did you go out to the wilderness to see? A, a reed shaken by the wind. What did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Behold, guess what John is? He's the manliest of men. He's a, a prophet par excellence. He is the real deal. He is the real godly man. Jesus even says in verse 9, did you go out to see a prophet? Yeah, I'll tell you what, uh, John is more than a prophet. He's actually the messenger who came to prepare the way for God. And, and listen to this endorsement that Jesus Christ himself says of John. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, that's everybody, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. No one. I mean, you talk about putting that on your resume, right? Ah, put that on your tombstone. Jesus said I was the best. Just a, a couple of chapters prior, we get this kind of ringing endorsement about who John is. He's the, the greatest of men. He's, again, theologically consistent. He's ethically holy. He's filled with love and obedience. In fact, actually, we find out in other books that he was converted in the womb, right? He becomes a Christian, so to speak, in, in utero, which is an amazing thing to think about. but he's dead and dies a horrible way, a gruesome fashion that had to have been unbearably painful. And really what this does is it, it, it highlights in our own minds this kind of incongruity that we see all of the time around us of a, a God that says he's good and circumstances that on the surface look really bad. And honestly, what happens is, is that when it's you that's suffering, it never really bothers me. Or when it's me that's suffering, it never really bothers you. It's when we ourselves suffer that this suddenly becomes a real struggle for us where we see these two great realities kind of hit against each other and I don't know who's going to win. How is it that our God is good and these circumstances are so bad. Well, I, I suspect part of why this is so unbelievably difficult for us is um, American evangelicalism, the confessional church, the evangelical church, not technically the same thing, but uh, the vein that many of us have grown up in, the vein of Christianity, has drunk from a well that I've, I've kind of labeled open-door theology. It's a way of approaching God's will that says the best way to determine what God wants me to do is by whether or not he opens and closes doors. The best way for me to determine what God wants me to be is by the way he opens and closes doors. Right? We hear it said when it comes time for people to look for a new job. This is the one that I hear the most, right? It equates ease with favor. Well, God obviously wanted me to have this job because he opened all the doors for me to get it. Made it so easy. 
I could just walk through them. Or uh, God obviously wanted me to go to this college because he made it so easy. I, I got into it. They gave me a scholarship. It was so easy. The problem is, is that God's will in this situation might have nothing to do with how easy it is to get in. You think of a situation years ago with a, uh, a friend who was looking at a job like that. The, the job was offering to pay him a lot of money. It was uh, a nice town for him to live in where he could take he and his family and they could live for a long, long time. And it'd be the type of place he could get settled in. And there was no Reformed church in the entire town. Hmm. Interesting. You see, what we've done is we've equated ease with God's favor. If we really wanted to put theological terms to it, we could say we've equated ease with obedience. And the problem is, is that when you equate ease with obedience, you either have to say John messed up or you have to say God messed up. And for a passage like this, it's very obvious God doesn't mess up. The Bible tells us that all the time. His ways are higher than our ways. His goodness surpasses goodness. He defines goodness. And we have Jesus just three chapters prior saying John doesn't mess up. The circumstances are bad. God and interestingly here, John are both good. The real problem, though, becomes when we begin to think about our own lives in this sort of way, because what we end up saying is, is these circumstances are hard, these circumstances are bad, therefore my God isn't good to me, or He's not taking care of me, or I'm somehow out of His favor because life is hard. And we begin to read this sort of relationship onto our spouse and onto our children and onto our coworkers and onto our boss and onto our church members. And we say, well, if it's difficult, it means there's something wrong. This tremendous danger of, of letting the circumstances work backward into shaping how we think about our God. Even this week, I was talking with a friend, and we were looking at Isaiah's call to ministry. Right? God gives Isaiah this glorious vision of kind of a glimpse into the throne room of God. He sees God's glory in a way that very few humans have, certainly in the Old Testament. And immediately following this kind of interchange of cleansing and glory, God says, well, who's going to go you know, work for us? Who's going to go serve me? Isaiah's like, well, I'll do it. Okay, great. And God says, you go. And your ministry is going to be one of judgment. Where the more you speak, the less they hear. And the more you preach, the less they love. And the more that you minister, the worse it gets. I don't want that. How long? Well, until Israel is destroyed is the answer. Like, talk about, again, bad job descriptions. If we're going to think in this sort of category of just because life is hard or bad, something's wrong, we have to say Isaiah's wrong, or we have to say God is wrong. And interestingly, again, in that chapter, we know they're both right. 
Or actually, worse yet, is it gives us a problem when it comes time to deal with Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. He never makes a mistake. He never sins. He never errs. He he never uh, does anything evil of any kind, and yet he's murdered unjustly at the end of this book. He doesn't stay dead. Death isn't good enough to handle him. It's not powerful enough. But it's interesting, again, how intellectually we can understand that when it comes time for us to deal with Jesus, but it doesn't translate to our own soul when it comes time to deal with me. That when I get into difficulty that I don't like, it's so hard to continue believing and letting it shape my emotions that my God is always good. And even in this situation, He's being good. Do you realize that your God loves you so much that sometimes He intentionally leads you into grievous difficulty so that it is for your benefit? One of the churches I, I worked at in the past, I inherited a youth group that was filled with lovely, uh, lovely children. They're amazing. They're all married and have kids now, and it's crazy. Lovely students. I enjoyed them to no end, but it was interesting that when I, I first inherited them, they had um, lived a, such a life of pleasure, pleasure and luxury and rest that they actually didn't know how to sweat. And so when we went outside and tried to play games, they couldn't play for more than three or four minutes before everybody had stop and take a break. And I'm not kidding when I say three or four minutes. And I, it was only just a matter of months into my ministry where I realized, oh my goodness, one of the things that I'm going to have to do as their pastor to help these students is to teach them that just because it's unpleasant for a season doesn't mean it's bad. Just because you're, you're sweating doesn't mean your body's dying. Just because you're out of breath, it doesn't mean you did anything wrong. And just because you're bleeding, it doesn't mean it's bad. Now, lots of blood, that's bad. But a skin knee, it's okay. So much of my ministry in that youth group was to teach them that it's okay to be uncomfortable for a spell. It doesn't mean that it's bad. And guess what? Did I not love them? Because I contrived various ways to make them miserable every month. We played ultimate from 10 to 2 outside in the Atlanta sun every Monday all summer. Right? 101 degrees. 60 kids outside playing ultimate. Game on. This is what we're going to do. We're going to learn that it's okay to, to be out of being comfortable and being filled with luxury. And it doesn't mean I don't love them. It doesn't mean God doesn't love them. Interestingly, though, we so much as adults think that's how God interacts with us. We forget that he leads us into difficulty intentionally to do good things to us through the difficulty. Right? Have you viewed COVID from this perspective? We're nearing a year, we're four weeks away from a year that our whole world changed as a church. Have you viewed it from the perspective of this is God intentionally leading us into circumstances to test your faith, to show you what your heart looks like, to help you determine what your priorities actually are? 
right? I mean, honestly, let's be candid. Lots of us like to talk about our priorities. This year showed you what they are. To expose your sin in a way that you hadn't been able to see it before. To let you see the hidden parts of your heart that under a normal week you would never actually show to anybody. But now I get to see my selfishness or my fear or whatever else it is just written large. You think about it in the counseling room where you have somebody talking, oh, this spouse is driving me crazy. You ever think about God's given you that specifically for your good? And that if even if that spouse were removed, the Lord would provide other difficulty to make sure you're appropriately miserable so you learn the lessons that you need to learn. That my illness is given to me for my good because the Lord blesses me through that. My God is always good, always good. All right, so with a backdrop here of a danger of letting our our circumstances shape our view of God's goodness, we see God is good, we dig into the passage and we go, well, okay, what happens then? If if it's not God being bad, if it's not John being bad, what's happening in the passage to help us understand it? Well, second danger here is a, a warning against the danger of forgetting that the world hates Christians because of biblical ethics. Biblical values function as a condemnation of the world. See, this is where the story gets exceedingly messy uh, and exceedingly unpleasant. Herod's family is like one of those families in the types of jokes that you've probably heard somewhere about the family tree that doesn't split. His is actually split, but rejoined in a number of places, and this story has it rejoining in at least three different ways, which is really disturbing. It would be, honestly, it would take too much time for me to even try to explain to you all of Herod's family tree. It's an absolute mess. The thing that's important to understand uh, is that Herodias, the wife in here, was first the wife of Herod Philip I. That was her uncle. She leaves her uncle, divorces him, to go and marry her other uncle, Herod Antipas, the Herod mentioned here, the Tetrarch, at which point they have a feast in which his stepdaughter would dance in front of him so that he could lust after her, right? The whole thing is just hideously nasty. The family of Herod is constantly filled with splits and disasters and messes and all sorts of things. It's so intriguing as to how just absolute much of a mess it is. Herod, by divorcing his first wife to marry Herodias, actually started a war because his first wife was a princess and he ticked off the entire kingdom that he divorced her from. And what happens? Well, John the Baptist goes to them and says, you can't do this. You proclaim to say that you're, you're part Jewish at least. You're following Jewish law in some fashion. You can't do this. One, because of the divorce issues. Two, because of the incest laws. You must not do this. Herod says, I want to. 
John says you can't. And we get from the grammar here that this conversation with Herod and John was not a one-time affair, but a long-running conversation in which John frequently spoke to the, uh, the governor here and said, you're not allowed to do this. This is evil. And interestingly, what happens? Herod's confronted with the reality of, do I choose God's law or do I choose my pleasures? Well, we know which one he chooses, and John is imprisoned. The interesting thing is that this entire family's interaction, and it's, uh, excuse me, so incredibly complicated with Herod the Great and Herod Antipas, Herod Philip, and you have so many of these folks, King Herod coming a second uh, in the the rest of the, the book here. All of these are people that when confronted with biblical reality, they lash out at them. It's certainly something that needs to be remembered for God's people, that is, uh, we continue to hold God's uh, ethics, as we continue to hold God's laws, we continue to hold His morality, by definition, it will make the world angry. Because it will highlight that we're different. Not better, different and redeemed. It will make them uncomfortable because it will explain to them that they're a sinner. Now, honestly, we're sinners too, so that really doesn't bother us to say. It bothers them for a reason. It gets our hackles up. And again, I would suggest this is a a particular danger for uh, the church that many of us have kind of grown up in because the church, the American church of the 80s, fell in love with being important Right? We had a, a, a disproportionately large voice in the political arena. That's where we got to see the moral majority kind of come into its own. And we fell in love with our own importance. We thought that by voting certain ways and by watching certain things and boycotting certain things, we could control the country and we could make people like us. And the problem is the DNA of the relationship between Christ's people and the world around is not one of favor. It's one of hatred because the very rules that we live by just remind their guilty conscience. That's why Jesus acknowledges that persecution is always going to follow. Now, it's not going to be, I'm not saying that American church is persecuted like it is in Eritrea or China and other parts of the world, North Korea. But there is a great reality that as we live according to the rules that God has given us, that it's going to offend people. And that's okay. Our job as Christians is not to go around not offending people. Our job is not to go around making people happy. Our job is not to go around being relevant. In fact, that's actually, I would suggest, one of the major mistakes that we've made. Our target is not niceness. Our target is not uh, being palatable to people around us. Our target goal is obedience. It's faithfulness. It's living with our God in this life and being ready to live with our God in the life to come. Two dangers. The danger of letting our circumstances shape our view of God's goodness. Two, the danger of forgetting the world hates biblical ethics. (laughs) Trying to be relevant. Third, and 
perhaps the most gruesome is the danger of forgetting that sin is contagious. Sin is contagious. Now, it's interesting that uh, we do, from our readings of the various Gospels here, we seem to understand that Herod's kind of goal in this entire interchange, he doesn't want to kill John at first. All he wants in this original interchange is for John to shut up so that he can marry his brother's wife, who's also his niece. That's all he wants is just John to be quiet. John's the gadfly who won't stop bothering him, and he just wants him to shut up. But it's interesting how his one sin that he wants to pursue at all costs, the the one thing he desires to do is to, to marry this woman... Well, what ends up happening, you can see the progression of how sin works in Herod's life. His desire for the woman ends up splitting his family. You think Herod Philip I had a good relationship after, a good relationship with his his half-brother after this? He ends up divorcing his first wife, like I said, who was a Nabataean princess, starts a war with her father's country. Ends up having this prophet who won't stop talking, so he throws him in prison. He doesn't initially want him dead, but even then won't stop talking. So then he wants to kill him uh, in conspiracy, but he can't because he's afraid of the people. And then he ends up being afraid of his wife. And then he makes this, you know, unbelievable commitment to give this girl whatever she wants. And then he's afraid of what his friends will think of him. And so he ends up murdering a person he initially didn't want to murder in front of everybody in the most gruesome dinner party ever with his head served on a platter on the table right next to the other serving platters of food and it's an absolute disaster. Right? If he were a holy man, this would be the point where you'd kind of stop and shake his head and say, how did I get here? How did my sin take me to this place? We've all heard the uh, saying, you remember it in various versions, of the, the sin always takes you further than you want to go. It does more damage than you think it will. You know, we tend to think of sin as something that can easily be compartmentalized and uh, a thing that we can kind of keep within some sort of manageable little box in our lives. And the unfortunate reality is that's not how sin works. It's, it's kind of contaminating I think my favorite illustration for how to think of sin is it's like glitter. Glitter looks really good at first, but you can never get rid of it, and it goes everywhere, right? It goes everywhere. I had friends that used to mail each other giant envelopes of glitter, and so when you would open it, just... Six months later, when they're still getting glitter out of their hair, it just doesn't look that good anymore. You're tired of it. it you're like, how did it get in my toothpaste tube? I don't even know how. You see, this is a warning for all of us because, uh, unfortunately, many of us think of our own sin in such a fashion where we have those private sins that we think are going to stay private. And the unfortunate reality is private sin is nowhere near as private as you think it is. And the reason why private sin is not private is because sin is never compartmentalized. 
You can't sin in private in this one little area and think it's going to stay in that area. It always spreads out and it touches other things and it shapes how we feel about our children and shapes how we feel about our spouses and our coworkers and our teachers and our classmates and our schoolwork. And it, it changes everything about how we feel and think about our world. If you've followed kind of church politics and the church news, this is one of the things that we've learned from watching so many seemingly good and famous pastors fall over the last 15 years. I say seemingly, we don't know their hearts, we we don't know the extent of what they're alleged to have done, but we do know that on almost all those situations, it started with a small private sin that turned out to not be private and not be small. And it wormed its way into everything. And the reality is, I think many of us probably do this, and I think COVID, again, has been so incredibly helpful for showcasing this, that our private secret sins, the ones that we've tried to keep compartmentalized, they just don't stay that way. They just don't stay that way. Which sets us up to be grateful for the Lord's loving kindness. You see, I think one of the reasons why this passage is in here is to just highlight this is the mess that Jesus comes in to forgive. These are the kind of situations that the Lord Jesus provides restoration in. You know, for those of us that have forgotten that sin is contagious, that have played with it, who've kept it close, who've kind of nurtured it, but said, I will nurture it inside this kind of one little garden in my heart. And brothers and sisters, I would say, please don't think that way. Instead, go to Christ. Confess your sin. Find forgiveness. Ask the Spirit to change you, to cleanse that part of your soul and all the other parts it's touched. And you get to this part and you think, man, this passage is really brutal, right? I mean, we've talked about how bad the circumstances are. It might impact how we think about God. We've talked about how the consequence of kind of biblical living is that the world is always going to hate us. And we've talked about how sin is far more devious and pernicious and messy than what we remember. And you could easily look at a passage like this and say, well, I mean, this is just, it doesn't have a happy ending, man. What a rotten story. Herod wins. Those are my least favorite kind of stories. They're stories where the bad guy wins in the end. And right now, it looks like the bad guy wins. Well, that's our last kind of warning here. A warning against the danger of forgetting that the win conditions for Christians are different. The win conditions for Christians are, are far different. Right? If we were going to use a, a worldly metric, we would have to look at this and say, you know what, John the Baptist lost and Herod won. 
John the Baptist lived a hard life. He spent time in prison, and then he was gruesomely beheaded. And John, I mean, and Herod got his cake and got to eat it too. He served as tetrarch. Had his brother's wife. Had all sorts of things that the world would offer. He had money and power and pleasure of all sorts and kinds. It would seem like he wins, doesn't it? Well, certainly that's part of what I think Matthew is kind of hinting at and implying with the kind of opening introduction of of how the story was even brought to light. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, friends, these are the words of a man with a guilty conscience who's living in fear. This this Jesus, this is John the Baptist back to haunt me. This is John the Baptist back to haunt me. He's been raised from the dead. And now this is why Jesus has so much power is because he's a ghost and he's coming to get me. You see, what Herod is actually showcasing for us here is that he's not actually winning in this life. His life is filled with the pleasures that the world has to offer, but he's actually miserable. Living with a hole in your soul is a terrible condition. Herod doesn't know peace. What he's doing instead is taking the pleasures of the world and trying to drown out the existential horror that resides within him. He's a man who's miserable and is trying to use pleasure to cover over it, to try to distract him, to keep him from thinking about what is most important. And interestingly, how does John end? Well, he dies in the text, but we know we already read it in Romans 6. John doesn't stay dead. I mean, not resurrected here in Jesus' form, but resurrected in Jesus himself. We know what happens to Christians when they die. The Bible is very, very clear about that. If a person is joined with Jesus Christ when they die, their body goes to the grave and it hangs out there for a season. It may rot along the way, might be fully rotted and dissolved into other bits and particles and be plant food and worm food. But while the body resides in the grave, their spirit passes not just into the ether, their spirit passes into God's very presence itself. So that while they reside with God in their spirit, they then wait for the resurrection in God's presence, longing for the second coming with all joy and all gladness. And at the second coming, they're reunited with their resurrected body. And on that day, which is judgment day, they will be found innocent based on the merits of Christ. And with that immortal body will be raised to glorious life forever. You see, the the thing here is that if you were going to use the world's ethics, Herod seems to win on the surface. The problem is that's not biblical ethics at all. John wins. I mean, how does he win? All, All Herod does is give him a seemingly early departure into his victory in the life to come. 
So at the moment that life left his body as his head was removed, his spirit passes into the presence of God where it will remain for all eternity. Remains without a body until the second coming and then with a body forever. Herod, on the other hand, well, he gets God's wrath if he's apart from Christ. You see, all of these warnings very quickly and very easily are, in essence, warnings that deal with the person and work of who God is. Right? Thinking about His goodness. Thinking about His Word. Thinking about Christ as forgiving of sins. Thinking about being with the Lord and thinking about my life differently. All of these things kind of come into a giant kind of culmination in the gospel itself. That while I am a sinner, I have been, and I am a sinner, I can and do have forgiveness in Jesus Christ. A forgiveness that was offered to me freely to me. It cost him everything. Undergoing the wrath of God in its totality on the cross. Think about it. The hell that Herod would be in for all eternity, Jesus did in his time on the cross. That's terrible. Cost him everything so that I might receive all of the credit for his work. So that I get credit for what he's done. In him, I'm baptized with him. In him, I die with him. In him, I'm raised with him. In him, I will be glorified forever. That's why we're going to sing our closing hymn, one of my favorite uh, statements of this theology. Jesus lives, and so shall I. How do I know I'm going to live? Because Jesus does. How do I know I'm going to be victorious? Because Jesus is. How do I know I get to be with God forever? Because Jesus already is. And I follow in his footsteps because I'm joined with him. Brothers and sisters, these warnings are at their core a warning uh, about thinking lesser of the Lord Christ, something none of us hopefully wish to do. May it be that God would cultivate in us a love of Christ and a love of His goodness even now. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. Forgive us for our Well, the various ways we have fallen prey to these dangers. And, O Lord, would your Spirit work in us to help us see Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.